Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. For our final episode of Season 2, we are proud to partner with Vona, Traveling While BIPOC, the nation's first writing workshop for travelers of color. In this episode, Christina Broby journeys to the Faroe Islands, where she pushes through anxiety and finds herself moved to tears by an experience that awaits her. Christina lives in Canada's Yukon on the traditional territories of the Kwanlin Dun First Nation and the Tan Kwachan First Council. Her nonfiction pieces have won a number of awards, including the 2022 Writers Union of Canada's Short Pro Competition. Her photography has appeared in The Sun Magazine and Brevity, a journal of concise literary nonfiction. Christina is a graduate of Vona, Voices of Our Nation Foundation. I'm Christina Brobby, reading my story, Traveling with Baggage. The schedules on the wall in the ferry terminal display the names of islands. Suroy, Michines, Klaxvik, Nolsoy, Hestor, Hatovik, which form part of the Faroes. With the help of my guidebook, I rule out a couple of them that are now accessible by road, and the most southerly, Suroy, that would take at least two hours to reach. Michines, where puffins breed in the fleeting summer months, requires more than one ferry and flexibility in scheduling. The likelihood of being stranded there for days due to bad weather is high in early spring. This archipelago of islands erupting from the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean has been on my list of places to visit for so long that I'd almost forgotten it. When two photographers, whom I revere like a pop star groupie, announced a photography tour, I didn't hesitate. Today is my free day before meeting them and the group tomorrow at Vagar's only airport hotel. I choose Nolsoy, the nearby island glimmering in this morning's light as I walked down the hill from my rented apartment on the outskirts of Tushan, the country's capital city. I attempt to decipher the timetable, which is akin to reading a periodic table without a chemistry background. The key guide uses the letter X for all weekdays. Particular days are numbered. One is Monday, seven is Sunday. There are deviations for holidays, Maundy Thursday, Great Prayer Day, the Eve of St. Olaf, St. Olaf Day, Ovi Festival, as well as Easter and Christmas. 
I'm traveling on Friday, day five. And as far as I'm aware, it's not a holiday. There's a 6.25 evening return ferry, another at 7.25, and then nothing until 10.20, the last of the day. The idea of missing the last ferry is enough to incite anxiety and claustrophobia. It's already past noon. I consider abandoning my impulsive decision to explore beyond Tushan, but rental vehicles are prohibitively expensive, public transport is sporadic, and there's the urge to cram as many experiences into the week, knowing it's unlikely I'll have either the means or time in future to return. Perhaps it's jet lag or my aging brain, but I feel poorly equipped to make the simple decision of whether to board a boat. I used to consider myself an adventurer, even a risk taker. Now, as I approach the significant milestone of my 60th birthday, I wonder whether I am becoming an anxious traveller, terrified of the what-if list. What if the last boat is cancelled? What if there's no accommodation as part of the backup plan? Before the list of potential catastrophes completely overwhelms me, I remind myself that I can play it safe, simply wander around the town, find a cafe and have a quiet day. The idea sounds boring. I wander over to buy a ticket. Below deck, in the cabin area, a few other passengers have escaped the rain. Two sit at the table opposite me. The younger in her twenties is, like me, of mixed race, her kinky hair proclaiming one aspect of her heritage. She carries a baby concealed from view by multiple blankets. I hadn't expected to see other faces of colour, particularly since the tourist season is still weeks away. I've become accustomed to being the only or the other person of colour in the remote places I prefer to visit. It's a familiar but still uncomfortable feeling, my skin screaming my foreignness, preventing me from blending into the human landscape, no matter how much I would prefer that state. The young woman converses with the other woman in Faroese. Their bags of shopping suggest they are Nalsoi residents returning home. I'm intrigued. What is her story? Was she the sole person of colour in her school as she grew up? I avoid staring at her as my own memories surface, of being the only black child in primary school in southern England, of my current home in northern Canada, where there are still so few other black people that when we see each other, we either act like this young woman and ignore each other, or give the universal nod of acknowledgement. The two women leave the boat ahead of me. I watch them walk beneath an arch formed from a whale's jaw and disappear on a street behind the dock. The village houses sit huddled together as if to present a united front against the capricious weather. Some have traditional grass roofs that absorb the abundant rain the pharaohs attract. A trail to two lighthouses marking the southern tip of the island starts beyond the village. Less than five minutes of walking brings me to the last of the houses and a steady climb through a farmer's fields until that too drops behind. Less than five minutes of walking brings me to the last of the houses and a steady climb through a farmer's fields until that too drops behind and I'm alone with the wind, gulls and sheep of various hues 
their coats the longest and thickest I've ever seen. They stare at me, wary, eyes like large marbles. This place reminds me of my home in the Yukon, where there are more dogs than people. I'm most comfortable in places where animals outnumber humans. On the trail, there's plenty of time to ponder the question I'm often asked. How did I come to live in a remote northern Canadian town so far from the busyness of London where I was born and lived as a teen? I have no easy answer despite the decades I've had to figure it out. Occasionally, I wonder if I escaped as far as possible. But from what? The uneasiness with myself? Or perhaps others' feelings of discomfort around me and my brown skin? The possible answers are endless. I reach the top of Ejaculature, the highest point on the isthmus, and I'm overheated from the effort. Across the strait, heavy clouds sit low, just north of Tushan, while the capital itself takes center stage, illuminated by light shafts breaking through clouds. To the south, another weather system in the distance suspends more clouds over the distant steel-gray waters. Close to the island, the waters are a distinct aqua. For now, my black pants absorb the sun's warmth. I remove my jacket, strap it to the pack and continue on. Minutes later, I stop to don the jacket again as large raindrops splatter on the ancient rocks. Although the virtually unmarked trail often disappears between boggy mud pools surrounded by cotton grass and sheep droppings, navigation is easy on this long, skinny island. Eventually, two transmitters come into sight. The wind increases in volume, drowning out plaintive bleatings of the sheep. When I arrive at the first lighthouse, it's no longer windy, but a gale or some other meteorological term for winds so strong that I can't walk upright. I hunch forward, eyes down, gripping the peak of my hood to keep it on my head. The guidebook recommended that I sit here and enjoy the views. My vision of gazing out beyond the lighthouse into the distance while I munched on the pastry I bought earlier is replaced with the reality of cowering behind a concrete structure jutting from the cliff as I blink through rain-speckled glasses, making futile efforts to take photos of the lighthouse with the heavy camera gear I've lugged here in my backpack. Because I carried the tripod too, I mount the camera but even with one hand holding it in place, the images are shaky and blurred by rain on the lens. I'd like to explore the long, low buildings reminiscent of English farms, but now snowflakes mingle with the driving rain and I can no longer feel my fingers. Hypothermia is around the corner. It's hard to believe that three families once called this windswept, desolate place home. Their ten children alternating between a school located here and Nolsoy. A gull's broken carcass is testament to the ruthless force of the winds from which there is nowhere to hide. I retreat without seeing the second lighthouse. As I descend into a small valley, a calm quietness returns. The sun breaks through the low scudding clouds and I can walk upright again. From my vantage point back at Egg Jacleta, 
I look down on Nolsoy, cradled in the harbour like a haven from the storm clouds behind it. In every direction the weather is different, with rain always imminent, it seems. I watch as the 635 ferry emerges from the harbour, bobbing in the waves on its return to Toshan. In an hour I'll be aboard, pleasantly weary from the hike, deciding what to do for dinner. In the meantime, I'll explore. In a matter of steps, I can visit both sides of the island. A few metres to my right are jagged cliffs with hundreds of nooks for stormy petrels and other seabirds to raise their young. There's nothing to prevent me from falling from the face of the earth, and it wouldn't be surprising to see dragons soaring in the distance. Back towards Tushan, close-cropped verdant grassy slopes speckled with sheep create a pastoral scene. I stop to take pictures, photographing the tresses of a dilapidated roof perched precariously on rocks, a roofless stone structure and an old grass-roofed building before re-entering the village. Past the whalebone arch, the road leads to a whitewashed church encircled by an ancient stone wall. Beside it, a massive rock commemorates a local hero, Nolsoya Pal, a seaman and poet famous for his attempts to increase trade and pharaoh's profile in the rest of Europe. I imagine the spray from waves in winter storms washing over the ship inscribed above his name on the stone. By 7.30, I am fixated on the strip of water between me and Toshan. There's no sign of the ferry. I watch the gunmetal waters like I'm a fishing wife waiting for the fleet's return at day's end. Rain and sleet slant around me again. My shoulders ache from the weight of my camera gear. The ferry must be running late. This morning, when I doubted my ability to read the ferry schedule, I'd checked with the woman who sold me the return ticket. Yes, yes, she had said. There's a 6.35 and a 7.35 boat this evening. If you miss that, the last one leaves at 10.20. On my return hike, I'd considered picking up the pace to catch the 6.35, just in case, but scolded that cautious, anxious self for wanting to play it safe. I curse. I wait another 15 minutes, hoping the fishing boat I watch might magically morph into a ferry as it navigates its way into the tiny harbour. Finally, the cold drives me back to the village. There's neither a terminal nor any passengers waiting, just ducks floating past the deserted dock. Beyond the arch, lights from a house that appears to be a cafe hint at warmth and shelter. The people at the tables by the window might be waiting for the boat. I walk up the stairs from the harbour and pass the garnet brown building several times, summoning courage to enter imagining arrested conversations as this middle-aged, brown-skinned, wind-blown woman enters. Too much of my life is spent hesitant to enter places where my presence might attract more than a quick glance. In other words, anywhere beyond a large, culturally diverse city. Below the radar is my comfort zone. Nalsoy, population around 220, is not within my comfort zone, despite knowing that there is at least one other brown-skinned woman here. I examine my few options. 
cower in the roofless shell of a deserted building accompanied by hypothermia for the next three hours, keep walking to stay warm despite my exhaustion, or walk through the door into warmth and risk what? A less than welcoming reception, being stared at, being ignored, an ignorant remark. I step towards the door, extending my right hand to turn the door handle, then shove my hand back into my jacket pocket. The steps to the jetty weren't on my list of options, but I start down them before I realize that the people sitting inside by the large window will witness my indecision if I continue any further. I retreat again, hesitate at the door, turn towards the abandoned buildings, change my mind again as an image of me crouched in a corner for three hours amidst rubble, broken glass and the faint smell of human piss moves this option to the bottom of the list. I turn and walk towards North Sawyer Powell's Rock, which isn't an option, but will delay a decision and might reveal a miracle in the form of a late ferry visible in the evening sun. I'd forgotten that the buildings afforded some slight protection from the weather. The sleet slaps me in my face until I return to the cafe. I open the door and peer through the steamy heat that has fogged my glasses at a woman with brunette hair standing behind the bar. All conversation has stopped at the table by the window. I have no furrowies to rely on. Hello, excuse me, but do you know if the 7.35 ferry is late, I ask? There's no 7.35 ferry on Fridays. The next one isn't until 10.20. She responds in perfect English with authority and little trace of an accent. I knew what her response would be, but I'm still devastated. I'm tempted to argue with her as if that might conjure up the missing ferry. Or to wail, I want to go home. I just want to be in Toshan. But middle-aged, brown-skinned, fly-below-the-radar women don't act that way. So I stare at her until she says with a hint of apology in her voice that the cafe is closing. She says, perhaps you'd like to go to the concert up at Maggie's. It's an a cappella group of women who sing in Bulgarian and Faroese. They're supposed to be very good. These people are going. She gestures at the group who are finishing glasses of wine and beer, empty plates on the table. Walking through the village, I lag behind the group, resurrecting the same internal debates on what reception might await me entering the next place. Why do the seemingly small acts take so much mental energy? Outside a house at the top of the village, a few men in their fifties and sixties chat on the deck. Cigarette smoke is grabbed from their lips by the wind. They wear sweaters or jackets and look over without interrupting their conversation at the two couples ahead of me who enter the house below a sign that says Maggie's Cafe makes music magic. At this point, I don't care whether the music I'll hear is magical. I simply want a warm place where I can remove my pack from my aching shoulders. A man with greying hair and knitted cardigan over his shirt leaves the group and asks if I'm here for the concert. He directs me through the white door into a darkened room that's packed and filled with loud conversations. 
Most of the women are in dresses, skirts, pantyhose, high-heeled shoes. I'm still wearing my wool hat, peak backwards. Beneath it, my loose curls matted. My zip-off hiking pants are streaked with mud and stained with sheep droppings that are probably also being tracked across the tiled floor as I walk to the bar to buy my ticket. It costs 110 kroner, and because I've been in the Faroes less than 24 hours, and because I'm mathematically challenged, I have no idea whether that is exorbitant or a bargain. It doesn't matter. I'm finally warm. I buy a glass of red wine and, aware of curious stares, work my way with my bulky pack and glass to one of the few unoccupied seats near the stage. In front of me is the only other person whose similar clothing suggests she might have been hiking earlier. She looks around and we smile at each other, both obviously not from the pharaohs. Framed photos of previous performers hang on the wall by the stage. Behind me, the boisterous conversations continue until the man in the cardigan takes the raised stage. He sets the ground rules for the evening in both English and Faroese, switching fluidly between the two languages, phones on mute, no videos or photos, then introduces the group that emerges from behind a dark curtain at the rear of the stage. I sip my wine and lean back against the wooden chair. Their dress, plain black outfits with peasant scarves worn around their waist, adorned with simple jewellery, lends a timeless element. My inability to follow the women's conversation as they introduce themselves to the audience frees my other senses and I relax in a dim light. It seems my reaction to their first song, a mournful ballad, that my emotions are also heightened but a few others in the audience are searching their pockets or purses for a tissue. The women are in harmony together. Beyond their voices, their movements, attire, and even their physical appearances blend, yet retain individual distinctions. They play to each other's strengths. After a while, I can close my eyes and recognize several of their voices. After intermission, the owner steps onto the stage and converses with the audience in Faroese. Then his arm waves in my direction as he smiles and says, and for the benefit of our English-speaking visitors this evening, I will explain what I just told the rest of you. He says, for the rest of the evening, the group will be singing in Faroese. Their songs are a mix of the modern and traditional. For once, I feel honoured to have been singled out. As the women perform, I sense the differences in language between Bulgarian and Faroese. The Bulgarian was like Russian with an edge to it. Faroese, a distinct language evolved from Old Norse, reminds me of the limited Norwegian I've heard. A ballad stirs the audience. Suddenly everyone is singing along, tapping their feet or slapping their thighs in sync with each other. Now I wish I understood the words. The women return after the curtain closes at 9.55 for an encore performance, two last songs. By 10.05 it's finished and the lights come on. People put on coats and scarves, women slip into sensible footwear, high-heeled shoes disappearing into voluminous leather bags. 
I wish Maggie's also offered accommodation so I could linger for another glass of wine and perhaps some casual conversation with the owner before falling asleep to the sound of the wind. I follow the mass exodus back down to the harbour, walking with the British girl who is staying in Tushan for three months, studying traditional music. On the boat, I watch her interview the singers, but the engine and other passengers' conversations preclude eavesdropping. My accommodation sits upon a hill overlooking downtown Toshan. I have the apartment upstairs to myself. From the floor-to-ceiling window in the living room, a small group of lights, like floating candles, appear suspended in the middle of the dark waters. This morning at the ferry terminal, I'd almost succumbed to my fear of being stranded, disconnected from the certainty that comes with readily available transport hubs to the rest of the pharaohs. My aversion to risk-taking could have jettisoned a full day of exploration and an evening of warm, pharaohese hospitality mixed up in five women's powerful voices. Now, though... I know that the floating candles in the dark light the way between houses to Maggie's cafe. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. Oh,